Hi there, and welcome to Military Histories, a podcast from York Army Museum. Each week we share an interview from the Royal Dragoon Guards audio archive. Throughout May and June we will be sharing interviews with World War II veterans. You can find more details about the Royal Dragoon Guards oral history project in the show notes. If you want to find out a bit more about our museum, there are links to our website and social media channels in the show notes too. In this week's interview you can hear Mr. Archie Carr describe his wartime experiences from arrival in Normandy through to the end of the Second World War. He discusses his award of the Distinguished Conduct Medal, and the later theft of his medals. Mr. Carr served with the 5th Inniskilling Dragoon Guards from 1935 to 1945. Thanks for listening, future episodes will drop every Friday. We were watching others go over and we were still sitting in these tents waiting. I think the reason we was all held in back was that we were waiting to take over of the uh, London Yeomanry. And uh, whether it was because of that, I don't know. But another week passed and then we got... Nearly half of the camp we'd been had already gone over and it come our turn to go. So when we went over there, we went over without tanks, just as we were, and uh, got into a field. The military police and the lot met us on the beach, and the beach were more or less a bit quiet then because they got they'd moved from the beach and took the beaches over and were moving inland then. And uh, we were we put in a field to camp there, and. Uh, very first night, very first night, we could hear the bombs dropping and all this shelling and that were going on. But Touchwood, we, we were all right. And then the weather picked up. And uh, I shall always remember the first time when they said, would you like to go and have a swim? Any of you like to go in the sea and have a swim? And they said, yes, well, it's, it's quiet enough. We can get up this bay and get out there. And uh, three or four got into trouble, and the padre said, form a link with us, arm in arm. Let's form a line. I'll walk out in front and you keep following, but hold on to somebody. Keep holding on. And uh, we got got out, we got up to a chest in the water, and we were still walking forward, trying to pick up these that were in trouble. And a, a big wave came, broke the chain the link as we got at the chain, and uh, the, the Padre and three or four at the front, they were washed out as well. And as it happened, the, the Padre, when we finished, we come back, all rushed back as could do, got back onto the beach, because the line were broken and there were nothing else, so we got back in and then we found out that the Padre had been washed away and a couple more. So that was our first of action not of action, but seeing our own men die and uh, before we'd even fired a shot. Well, did that have a, a bit of a big effect on morale? Hmm? Did that have a big effect on the troops' morale and their feelings? No, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I think everybody were, were ju- just fed up of hanging about and wanted to get into action. Yeah, but when you lost the Padre and well, the other guys, yeah. it must have been quite depressing. It was, it was depressing then, yeah. Because that Padre was a bloody grand chap, he was. You, did you know him well? Yeah, he'd been with us long. He'd been with us quite a time, you see. 
when we were up Long Framlington, it was the same Padre then. So what was, when you go back to the beach, what was the beach, was the beach busy? Was there vehicles going all over? Yeah, the there were. Was there, it uh, hot? Was there lots of shipping there? Was there a of any kind of barrage going on then? Or was it just like a beach? No, we, they covered the beach. We weren't having any trouble about shelling the beach. And they were unloading supplies. That was it. The biggest cargo boats were coming in now. And we more or less got, I think we must have had control of over the sky because we never got any much of that. If we got any shell at all, it was in the darkness at night when the bombers couldn't see them coming over. But in daylight, I think it, were, it seemed to be pretty peaceful on the beach. And when you were camped in the field, was it hot? Yeah, it was damn warm, yeah. So what did you do when you were just hanging about? Was yeah. there anything you could do? Oh, well, nothing to do. Just hanging about, march and have, have lectures on different things and that. And we're still wet. The colonel at the time, what was his name now? The, Sweatnam. Eh? Sweatnam. Sweatnam. He, uh, he was up at headquarters trying to how long it was before we could go into action. And then, uh, then when we got tailed, we got put in with the uh, one of the finest divisions ever been, one of the Desert Rats. First and fifth Royal Tank Regiment and us. So we were the three tank regiments in the division. So when you got the orders that you were going into the line, that you were finally going to drive yeah. off, and you got your vehicles. We got so a vehicles, yeah. After all these days and days of waiting, yeah. what, what happened as you, as you pulled off into it? How, how do you remember those days? Well, I remember they split the squadrons up a bit. Now, Serbia on one squadron would be advanced squadron, then the others back behind. So I can't, I can't remember who, who actually started, but the first day A squadron were sent into action at the front. We had to. They were told to go down the Bacard and move along that road there, and uh, that's the first time. And uh, it brings back to memory then that uh, we were trying to take it easy, but these young officers, I've said after, they were so keen to get cracking they couldn't wait. They wouldn't listen to any reason, and I can always remember Philo getting excited, and he said. Come on, come on, come on. Got to get moving. Get over that road there. And I, am, I said, hang on a bit. I said, we'd better find out whether there's anybody covering that road, haven't we? Come on, we'll find out. Off we go. Well, so I didn't tell my tank driver to move. And he got impatient. So he shot on in the front. And I told you what happened. He hit, hit the main crossroads and the anti tank, German anti tank gun, straight through the tank. Driver and co driver, Booth and Hodson. Both killed outright, and the explosion blew him out the tank. He was stood up in the bottom of the tank through there, so it blew him out. And he was sent away, and we never saw him anymore till the war ended. Never saw him anymore. And was that, so, the, was so, that the first time that you were actually in action? Yeah, that's the first day. So, and, and, and how, do you remember, how, the, how did that affect you? Did that make you sort of... No, I think it was a good idea, realising now that you couldn't go mad at anything. You had to be careful what you did and not go out mad as though you were going nothing. 
I mean, German, the German soldiers, the German Romans, they weren't a soft, a soft touch. They, they'd been brought up well. They knew how to handle anything. So we were up against a good enemy, weren't we? I would have thought so, yeah. But I don't know. I wasn't there. Well, I do. I mean, there were no mugs, the Germans. So uh, we just had to take care of any road, uh, we got settled in there, moving along, and then a sniper got me. It hit my headphone here, hit the earpiece, took a little bit of my ear off, and I was I was actually taking my headphones off. And it caught my finger here and my ear, and the headphone all the all three went off together like that. So I just bandaged myself up and carried on. Then the squad leader, about a couple of hours later, we were still moving about. Where that tank had been crossed out, we, we left it and moved on. We were still on the job to move forward, you see. And uh, when he saw me, he said, you better go and have it treated, you see. So I said, I'll leave it. So uh, I wasn't in hospital or anything. They just sent me down to have it treated and put bandaged up at the first aid done. Then we carried on after, no different. What was the, what was what happened in a typical day? You know, how much sleep did you get, and when? Where, how did you how did you sleep at night? What was the well, form? this is it. This is it. I mean, I always slept like a log. I don't know whether anybody else did, but we used to dig a trench, a four foot, four foot by six trench, about a foot deep, or eighteen inches, say. Dig that out. Then we'd get underneath, lay ground sheets and a blanket and all lay together under, under this tank. Then while we were in, when we got in position, the driver, we left him out, but the driver had to drive the tank over the top of us. Follow what I mean? So if anybody bombed us, They'd have to hit the tank and they couldn't get at us because we were underneath it. Do you know what I mean? So we were safe as I always thought we were safe as houses under there. And we slept all right. And we always slept like that. Till things got better and we didn't need to get these trenches and all that. When we got Jerry on the run then, that changed it, didn't it? We didn't have to do that then. And what did you eat? What did you eat every day? What was your food rations like? The what, food, what were they? No, the food were all tin stuff, and they're still selling it now. I reckon you were that. We got tin potatoes, tin carrots, just the same as you do today, as you buy today. Tin rice puddings, tin bacon, tin bacon, tin corned beef. We never ate. We always used to get this to the the. <laughs> As we went past the villages in, in Normandy and that, they were all half starving, so we gave them all the corned beef we didn't want and kept the rice puddings for ourselves. But, yeah, the food was quite good. Did you have to cook it yourself? Or did yeah, you... yeah. How did you do that? Well, uh, if, we, if we just wanted eating, they have heating tins, the tin, just to boil some... Uh, uh, what did we get there? Get the, uh, not the petrol. We'd soak something in uh, 
Methylated spirits. That's it, isn't it, Morris? Tell me, tell me the story again. Yeah, light it up. And uh, we didn't hop, we didn't hop much stuff up, you know. But some might might get a soup, and hop that up. But the others, we could we could manage all right. What was France like? What did the place look like? What was it? What was the countryside like? What is the buildings like? Uh, that was absolute hell. The villages, some villages were absolutely flattened. Nothing. Just rubble. As they retreated to Germans, they blew everything up they could before we got there. It was terrible. They they really did suffer in Normandy in France. But as we went further on, they were having to retreat quicker. And the faster we went, the faster we, they had, faster they go. So they hadn't got a lot of time to blow villages, villages up in Holland and that. They did a few, did a few, but uh, nothing like Act and Mount for it. They got it a bit, but nothing like Normandy and France had been. One of the things that really interests me, because I hear a lot of people talking about it that have had this experience, yeah. is that when combat starts, it's sort of, in any unit, it sorts the men from the boys. There are people oh, yeah. that suddenly realise they can't do it. And no. there are others that do it. Yeah. Did, you, did you experience that with the people that you were around you? There were some people that could do it, some people were uh, no good at it. Not too, too, too bad. There were one or two a bit nervous. But don't forget, these lads These lads are coming. I was 20, I was you know, 23, 24, and I'd had years of experience. I've been in Palestine, and I've got a lot of experience. These lads had just come from England and never fired a live shot, had they? So one or two of them was a bit, a bit nervous, like you know. But I knew one or two, but God bless them. Some of them are dead now, but uh, the youngster, young, they were young lads, and we we tried our best to calm them down a bit, you know. That, uh, uh, did you get much instruction in terms of orders about what to expect on the next day and on the next oh, day? Oh, yeah, you had, that, you had that every night. How did that happen? Who came to you? Well, the Colonel would be back with HQ and we'd be BC and AS school, the fighting squadrons. Eh? Then at night, they'd call in all troop leaders, squadron leaders and, and troop leaders. If the if it wasn't very much information they could be, it'd be squadron leaders only. And then the squadron leader would come back and talk to his own four troop leaders. He'd tell you then what happened. But if it was going to be a big push or something like that, the colonel would have all troop leaders there. What was your equipment like? What did you, how did you rate your equipment? Well, I, I think we had a brain gun, didn't we? If we needed outside, and I said, the only thing was that our tanks weren't built like the old Tiger tank, were they? They were. They weren't stood up. They were a bit. Ab Germany were more advanced with their tanks, the Tiger tank, and it took years, months, and months for us to bring up something. Then we finished up with the Comet tank, which was quite good but still wasn't as good as the Tiger tank. So we had to find ways of getting through 
without head on with the Tiger tank, you see. So if we can find and come up on their right or left flank and come round them, we get more chance of getting them as we could. If we could get within about 100 yards, 150 yards and fire, you could hit the Tiger tank then. But for long distance shooting, no. So it paid us more or less to creep round and that's when the colonel and the officers sorted out which map we were on and what we were going and find a way around to get round them and come in from the side. We were pushed on then. You see, the, the system was worked in our regiment was you'd have one squadron in the front and two in reserve all the time. So this particular, on the particular run of the Rizzle, Rizzle they called it, in the, the river, was A squadron. That was us. So the squadron leader said, take second troop and go wrong to the left, another one to the right, and try and find out if there's any way across in this river, if you come to anywhere. Well, we found an old wooden bridge over a, a weir. And I thought, that, that is going across. It was right across. And there was an old man at the end in a little wooden orchard, more or less looking after the bridge, I suppose, seeing the traffic going over. So uh, I saw this bridge, and I thought, well, we're going to try this. So he said, one, t one tank first, go first. So I sent one tank over, and he got across. So as soon as I got across, I went over, and the other two. So we got three tanks over there, and all we were getting was small arms fire, rifle shots, that's all. So we just shut down, and spread out about four to five hundred yards on the other side of the river and we're all in that bridge. So I rung back to the squadron leader and said, we've got this bridge and we're on the other side and we're all in the bridge for you. And they said, oh, good. So it finished up, the whole division crossed on that bridge. And it's still there? Yeah, well, it's been built up lovely. It's a lovely bridge now, but it, it was all one one with sleepers. I didn't think it would take all that weight, but it did. And were you aware that the other bridges had been blown? Well, we'd, we'd seen them blown, but we didn't know how many, how far up. We'd gone, we'd gone three or four miles up this river looking for bridges, and that when we found this weir bridge. But uh, how far they'd been blown further along, I don't know. But it couldn't have been anybody else because I said, they finished up with the whole division crossing this bridge. All the armoured division, I mean, not the... And, when, and then, those, that was when German, the Germans were really on the run by then. Yeah, we were, they were. They'd left, I mean, normally, if they wanted to protect that bridge, they'd have left some more than some hadn't, wouldn't they? Well, maybe they thought no one could get it. Well, they'd had a couple of anti-tank guns or some... Brit some guns there, weren't they? But they won't. 
we pushed up that bridge and went on a good mile or two before. Then, of course, the regiment were all behind. They were away like mad. They were, they were running away like mad then. Were you taking lots of prisoners at this time, or there was no, not? Not a you? lot. No. Uh, uh, I took. Uh, I got a tip off once that uh, there was a German regiment about two miles up the road in a field and they'd, they'd stop there for food. They got in a lay, lay by light and they, they were all, got there and they said there's a full regiment there. So I didn't know whether this Dutch man was telling the truth or not, but I said, right, oh, we'll go up there. So we went up, saw them in this camp, sent one tank there, left hand, then went forward with the guns lined up and uh, they couldn't do anything. They were still up, queue, queuing up for meals with mess tins when we got with. And uh, I rung up to the rung up the squad leader, and I said, "We've got a, a regiment, a German regiment here, a foot foot regiment." I said, "And uh, I've got out and I've spoke to the officer. Did they want to surrender?" And he said, "He'll only surrender to an officer." So Gibson said to me, "Give him two minutes to surrender, or shoot him." So I went to him, I said, been in, he spoke English well, and I said, I've just been in touch with the headquarters and they've given you two minutes to surrender or I've got to shoot you. So I said, not only me, but I said, I've got three tanks, you can see them all there, all the guns are facing you, two machine guns and a 75mm on. I said, no, it's up to you. So he said, right, I'll surrender. So I said, well, get them lined up. So they lined them up, and I said, right, march, we'll go back now, take you back towards headquarters. And they got them on the road and started marching on. I thought, well, I can't do much with these. When you're in a tank, you can't look after infantry, under an odd infantry, while you're in a tank very well. So I told Gibson that, he said, well, hand them over to one of any of our troops you come across. And I come across a... A regiment, I don't know whether a light infantry now, I don't know whether it's Somerset or the East Line. But uh, I said, gonna roll the tank up. I said, You couldn't take over these, could you? Because I said, I've got to join the squadron and we're making a push over there with the tank. Could you all these prisoners? And he said, Yeah, leave them with us. So I left them with them and I pushed on then. But there was about Nearly 200 of them. What do you think about going back and what sort of emotions and feelings does it sort of stir in you? Yeah, I, well, you start bringing you back the memories of any of the lads who were killed there, like, you know. A lot of the lads who... I mean, everywhere we went, there was always somebody who had been killed. And you, you go to the cemetery and you see this grave, like, Uden. We've got six lads buried at Uden Cemetery, you know. Uden. I shall always remember that trip along the railway line up on an embankment about 10 foot high and the East Lanks infantry was behind the lines, you know, on this, this 
bloody, what do you call it, when they're on a hill, on the line on the embankment. On the embankment. They were down below, on the open fields. We were high up, ten foot high, on a single railway line, running from Newland into uh, a Torgenbosch. And that was the only way, we'd been told, that was the only way we could get any armour in to assist them in a Torgenbosch. So uh, we went along this railway line. Then when we got off at the other end, uh, we swung off, off the line, into the town itself, and the general were there. And he said, oh, thank God, thank God you made it. He said, I never thought you would. I said, well, why? He said, because two days ago, there was artillery in that wood there covering the road coming in, and they run out of ammunition. So they left, left the guns and went. <laughs> when you're talking about woods and heavy cover, and I'm thinking about Normandy, when I go back to Normandy, all I see in Normandy is woods and hedges and things that would make me think that it was a very hard place to fight in a tank battle. Yes, but I mean, when we got there, by the time we got there, it wasn't a nice place of hedges and that then. It was all blown to hell, wasn't it? It was nothing for us to go along the road and see about eight cows lying dead where they'd been blown up on the side of the road. That was the picture we got in them days, is that. So when you go back now and there's lovely houses being built and roads and you're going back 50 years, you can't believe what it looked like 50 years ago, you see. Did you find it hard coming back to peacetime when you stopped the fighting? Was there a... Did your life... Was there sort of a big change in you? Uh, well, I'll tell you when it when we, it had ended. We'd just gone through Hamburg, and Hamburg was a hell of a mess. Nothing but rumble. We went through Hamburg, and we got to a, a little village called Brunsbuttle, just by the Kiel River, Kiel Canal. And... Uh, we halted there, stayed there. The war had ended, finished. Came over the air then, stay where you are for not till you get told what to do. So we stayed there and uh, this this tiny little village by the side there, nearly, as they say, 70% of the men spoke enough English to talk to you. But we were told no fraternisation. But these chaps who were living there They'd been going to England three or four times a year with cargo boats and they were going across to Hull and the, the, uh, the east coast of England, different ports along that way. So they'd done, picked up the English and that there and uh, they, they more or less said, well, we're, we're glad it's all over now, let's get settled in now and that's it. But we weren't supposed to be talking to them, but they were so friendly and wanted to come out. We were giving them white bread and they hadn't seen any white bread for weeks. and We got real friendly with them, man, you know. Did you think your life had changed because of the war? I think, it's, I think, it, I think it changed so much that uh, you, you, didn't give, you don't give two dams now what happens. You were lucky to come out of it. If we come out of it, we were lucky. 
and I think I was lucky because we had a lot of near near dues on. But uh, I was lucky, so I thought, well, from now on, I'm not going to worry about anything. I will take things as they come, and I think everybody else had the same idea then. I mean, did you? Did you, would you? Is it? Is it too much to say that you enjoyed the war? Did you enjoy the war? Well, there were some. You enjoyed part of it. I know the war. We nobody wanted to be a war. Nobody wanted it. We didn't want it. We enjoyed being in the army, but we knew if we were in the army, we joined up to fight for the country, aren't we? You join up for that, and. We could have been sent to the uh, Middle East, couldn't we? Africa, the Africa campaign and all these odd. And we were sending troops to India for Burma. And I kept missing all these transfers to other regiments. I was missing them all. I was, missing, I was still staying with my own regiment I joined with. And yet we were losing no end of being transferred and then they, they started forming uh, regiments now, ready for D-Day, 22nd Dragoons, 23rd Hussars. No, we'd never heard of them things before. So they put so many regular soldiers and officers and then called up the conscripts and they formed another regiment. And I was still left with the old regiment and you get so attached to it, you know, I never want to leave. Then when we went into action, it was the same in action. It was skins this and skins that. Everybody helped each other. Family. It was more a family of the regiment than a regiment. Did you ever think that there was ever a time when your number was up? Were you I, ever really afraid for your life? Uh, no, I wasn't. I don't know. I used, to, I used to do some mad things. I mean, when we got to... Uh, Ghent, there was a dockside there, harbour side there, and the jerrys were there, and they were covering, they'd, they'd got Ghent, they were older there, and we had to go and get it if we could. And uh, there was a bridge there, and you know those bridges that you, they open out like a dock, you know, if you're up the canals where they used to open the, the yeah, I can't swing, remember what's swing, bridge. swing bridge, swing bridge, swing bridge. That's right. And uh, we couldn't get this bridge. Uh, and we said, if we could get over the bridge, get, if we get the bridge going, all right. So I said, well, I'll go up there. So I jumped out the tank, got a long cord rope and uh, fastened it onto this bridge, to the tank, and I thought, Put the tank in reverse and it'll pull that bridge over with it, you see. And as soon as they saw what we were doing, they opened up with fire. And I could see the bullets were coming around the floor at the side of me and I was behind this wooden, it's about this thick, you know, the swing bridges they've had, they were behind there. And then uh, when they saw it, our tank started opening fire to them. Then I, I, I run back to the tank, got in it and pulled it out. That bloody rope broke before we could pull the bridge. The rope broke, so we never did. But, I, I mean, I were mad to get out in the first place, wasn't I? When Jerry were there. But, uh, I don't know, you, you, do the, you don't think of these things when you're doing it. You do, you do damn mad things, don't you?
got in trouble once with some hard artillery and uh, had three tanks and two tanks were blown up and my tank was it but not put out of action and I, I'd said two of my lads there had uh, jumped out the tanks but been wounded jumping out you know the rest were in the tank had been blown up but two of them jumped out and I went and carried one bike and the squad leader went off his damn dead, he said. I said, well, I couldn't leave him lying there. I said he was alive. So I put him back on a tank and I was going back for the other and he said, if you go back, I'll shoot you. So, <laughs> but I mean, you don't think of it. You're not, I don't know whether I'm anybody, I don't think any of the lads are different to me. You do these things on the spur of the moment and it doesn't worry you. You don't think of anything happening. You don't think it's going to be you. You don't think it's going to be you. When did you learn that you got the DCM? Well, how did I learn? Hmm. Squad leader sent for me. And he said, I've just been informed that you've been awarded the DCM. And he said, uh, then I, I started to get in. I got letters from two generals. General Lyme and another one, and uh, they sent me the ribbon. They sent me to the ribbon, and they said, You'll get your medal later. But he said, uh, You'll have to come. Montgomery will have a, a do on the field. And he got us all on the field. Oh, all those who got a medal in the last three months, MMs and everything. And you got in the field and he just stood on the platform and you went up and got the medal. And then he, I don't know. You must have felt pretty good. Eh? Did you feel pretty good about that? Did I what? Feel very good about yeah, it. Yeah, I did, yeah. I'm pleased about it, yeah. But uh, Gibson was. Harris Quan leader was so, so thrilled about it. He invited me in the mess. I'd never been in before a South's mess. And all the officers were in there, and he asked them all to stand when I went in. <laughs> Gibson. He was a good man to me, he was like a father to me. Good chap. It's supposed to be the second highest medal you can get to the VC for, for other ranks. It's the second highest. But uh, I don't know. I had mine stolen, you know. All my medals were stolen. Had to get another lot. Where were they, where were they from your house? Eh? Were they stolen from your house? No, stolen from a... We went to a, a regimental reunion. And uh, we had a coach. So we said, took your medals out. You don't want to wear them. Leave them on the coach, so... We left a coat, or overcoat, anything we didn't want left on the coach. And I don't think for this day that driver locked the coach up. But anyway, when we came out from the uh, reunion and got in the coach, our case, little jewel box with the medals and the wife's wristwatch and all that sort of stuff, we had gone. So I reported it straight away. And uh, they said... Uh, Right. So the next thing we knew was that, uh, oh, the DCM League 
at London, their headquarters, as soon as they got to know about it, they set Scotland Yard to try and trace it, but they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't find anything, nothing they could do. They didn't know witnesses or nothing. Then about oh, three or four years later, they went up for auction in Christie's. So Christie's rung for the regiment and they said that, uh, you got an ex-Sergeant Carr in your regiment? He said, well, he was, yeah, what about him? So we've got his medals up for sale. Would the regiment like to buy them? And he said, well, he's, the man's still alive, I'm, I'm still here. But I was on holiday and didn't know all this was going on. So they said, I don't know about it. So when I come back, they said, your medals are at Christie's. And uh, they wanted to know about it. Like, Did you know it'd been pinched? Were you in need of money? I said, no, I don't want any money. I want my medal. They said, well, we told Christie's we did we couldn't do anything about it till we'd seen you. Well, instead of Christie's waiting, they put it up for sale the next day and they were sold, about, about four or six thousand, I think they got, for the, for the had, had eight medals. Palestine medal, the war medals, and all that. And the, uh, there we go. Any road, General Anderson was uh, general of the command then, and uh, he got to know about it. So he had me a new set of medals, got me, free, and got the DCM and the med Palestine medal and bars and the other medals, and he had a full set sent me. I didn't pay a penny, he gave me, he bought me them, General Anderson, and sent them to me, and he said, sorry about all the trouble you've had, and that. But I rung, we rung up Christie's after. They tried everything, and they wouldn't, they, they said, it's not, we're not law, we haven't got to notify who buys them. Who we sell them to is secret. And that's all we got. And Christie's did that. And I never did get the medals back. I've had to have another set, a duplicate set. But the originals, they went. They never found out who was putting no, them up. No, I never found out. They had Scotland Yard and no end. And Christie's, the, the, the uh, secretary of the DCM League, they're interested because it's their, one of their men's medals, isn't it, DCM? They tried, they, they couldn't do anything about it. No. Well, it was stolen property, wasn't it? Stolen property. Never got it. Amazing. Air Squadron was always away from the regiment. Even when the regiment moved to Northampton, HQ, B and C Squadron were billeted in Northampton. A Squadron was sent to a village in Moulton, where we are now. And it's always like So you knew everybody in your squadron, but you, you met others in the science mess and that, out of B and C Squadron, but there were you a hell of a lot you never knew in the other squadrons because you never saw them. You didn't see them. It was a proper family knitter for the A Squadron. The officers knew everybody, we knew every officer and 
they know everybody about you and family and so the other people you met you met by chance really well the, the other anybody else you ran into by chance yeah so when you ran into recce squadron it was by chance really yeah i did yeah it was just by chance they came through I remember uh, Bill Anna, he was my operator for a time, came from Northampton, he married at Northampton, same time as I married. He was my wireless operator. He had his head blown off. I mean, he was buried in Uden Cemetery. I've been twice to look at his grave, seen him there. Major Gibson. Our squadron leader, we kept in touch when the war ended. And two or three times a year, I'd have a letter from him and I'd write to him. Then he had a hunting accident, he was killed, broke his neck. And his wife still corresponds every year, uh, probably twice a year, I get a letter from her. And she's in an old people's home on the Scottish borders. So I, I do keep in touch with them as much as I can. But like I said, they're, they're, they're going off that fast now. I, I, I have a lot of pals, young lads. I'm, I often think of them then now, but they're all going now. I'd, uh, Billy Dunn. Now, Billy Dunn, I never knew whether it was his nerves or he took the uh, took about believing in Jesus and anything. No, no. But every he always had a New Testament with him, and that was issued to us all. We all had a New Testament issued to us in the army, in the army, little bit of New Testament. But and every time we pulled up anywhere, if you went to see him, he was always sat reading this book. And he got shot, so I don't know. And then you think about all these lads who's gone, and you think back of all of it. I've always said that, I think, think of that. I was damn lucky to come out of it, wasn't I?